Well, these are uncertain times. Our country is at war. Um, I have found my own emotions, my mood kind of rising and falling with the latest reports on, on the, the television set. It's almost uh, more difficult when we know everything as it happens, sometimes before it happens, uh, and sometimes we get it wrong. It sounds like from a uh, military perspective, the war is going as well as uh, they could have hoped for. And you know, I pray that for the sake of the soldiers that we have over there, for the sake of, of world uh, stability, that it continues to go well, and that it gets over as quickly as possible. But uh, we have to ask ourselves then, what then? What, ha- what happens after it's over? What will things be like? How will that affect our economy, you know, the stock market? How will it affect our relationships with other countries? How, uh, how do, we, do we deal with this? Um, and what happens if the war lingers? What happens if it goes badly for us? What then? And how do we deal with the, the differences among us, the dissent uh, you know, we, we live in a, in a free society where it is appropriate that people express their views openly. But how do we as believers deal with the fact that we see things differently? Some of us feel we are doing the right thing and we should be there. Others feel, no, this is not the right thing for us to be doing. We don't belong over there. How do we deal with that division in our communities, in our, in our churches? Well... Everything right now is unstable. Our, our future is uncertain. So where can we find stability? Where can we find an anchor in all of this? Um, Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will not pass away. When Jerusalem was facing a very uncertain time, uh, there, the Assyrians were just about to invade Jerusalem. Isaiah wrote, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Peter quotes this from Isaiah, and he says, This is the word that was preached to you. This is the word that we've got here in our Bibles. It abides. It's stable. When everything else is unstable, in these times where we are looking for something stable, the word of God doesn't change. It doesn't move. It provides us with stability to live healthy, productive lives in times like these. In fact, the the Word of God is about the most valuable thing that you possess, not only for this time, for any time. Uh, The um, psalmist writes that, uh, um, that it is more precious, more desirable, more valuable than gold. He says, even than a pile of gold, and it's sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. Moreover, by this, we are warned and in, in, in keeping God's word, there is great reward. Joshua tells us that, uh, that the word of God is the key to success in life. And we're also uh, told by Paul that in God's word is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Like I said, this is the most valuable thing you possess. You know, in a country like ours, it's hard to grasp that because we have so many Bibles available to us. We have so many opportunities to hear it and study it. I've got, I don't know how many Bibles in my office at home, in my office here, but, uh, you know, I don't have one pile of gold. So it's hard for me to think these are more valuable than a pile of gold. 
But when you go to countries where they don't have this access, you see how precious it really is. People who've been deprived know the value of the word. Uh, Charles Labasse, who's one of our, <clears throat> our church who's temporarily living in Austria, told me last year he and some German Christians were taking supplies into Romania. When it first opened up, they took in a, a truckload of, of medical supplies and blankets. And as they were unloading the truck, one of the Romanian leaders came over to him and said, this is great. We need these supplies desperately. Thank you for them. But please, next time, would you bring Bibles? They, they wanted Bibles more than they wanted medical supplies. Gary Parsons, uh, I think he's told us here one Sunday morning how when he was uh, in the Soviet Union, he gave a, a Bible to the grandmother of the family that he was staying with. And her eyes got big, and they filled with tears. And with tears running down her cheek, she held that Bible to her breast, and she said, for this I have waited all my life. The Bible truly is, the Scripture, the Word of God truly is the most valuable thing that you possess. And that's why Paul is so aggressive, so adamant in defending it. We're going to be looking at the first couple of chapters of Galatians this morning. And in these chapters, it sounds like Paul is defending himself. Like Paul is is trying to... Uh, his ego is hurt. He wants everybody to realize just how important a person he really is. That's what a first reading, a lot of people take these chapters to be saying. But that's really not what's happening. What's happening is Paul realizes that the word of God is under attack. And his intent, his desire is to defend the word of God. Because see, Paul was, was aware <clears throat> that the things that he was teaching, the things that he was writing, were in fact the word of God. In First Thessalonians, he says, listen, I'm just telling you what Jesus told me. And if you disagree with this, if you reject this, you're not rejecting me. You're not rejecting a human. You're rejecting God who sends his Holy Spirit. The other apostles realized that, that they were writing scripture, that they were teaching the word of God. And in fact, Peter refers to Paul's writings as scripture in Second uh, Peter 3. Because they were acutely aware that the things they were saying, the things they were writing, were the word of God. Paul is speaking in the name of Jesus, and so he feels, and rightly so, the need to defend the message that he brings. Because he knows that if people lose the word of God, they lose everything. Reminds me of a story I heard of, of George Whitfield. I read this in John Stott's book, Between Two Worlds. He tells about a time George Whitfield was a, a great preacher about the time of the American Revolution. But he, the story tells how Whitfield was addressing a congregation in New Jersey. And as he was speaking, an elderly gentleman was settling in for his uh, normal sermon time nap. Whitfield went on, and as he saw this fellow start to fall off, he came around, he stomped his feet, he clapped his hands really loudly, and he says, and I quote, he says, If I had come to speak to you in my own name, you might rest your elbows upon your knees and your heads on your hands and go to sleep. But I have come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts, and I must and I will be heard. I think I'll try that the next time I catch one of you guys. <laughs> But see, Paul is coming to us in the name of Jesus Christ. 
And so he insists that his message be taken seriously. He got it directly from him, and so he must defend that message. So, what I'd like to do this morning is is take a, a look at Paul's argument there in Galatians 1. We'll start about verse 11. And then, again, return to see the importance of this argument, why he argued so strongly. What Paul is doing in the section we're looking at is demonstrating that his gospel, the teaching that he did, was not something he got from somebody else. You see, there were people saying, well, Paul just learned this from the the real apostles in Jerusalem. And now when Paul's trying to teach it, he's messing it all up. He's getting it wrong. He, he just heard what they said, and now he's trying to teach himself, and he's changing everything. And Paul wants to, to deal with that, that, that lie, that misconception. Paul says, this is the true gospel. Listen to verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says, this just isn't true. I am not trying to imitate anybody. I receive this directly from Jesus Christ. That's what I'm giving you. That's what I'm telling you. Verse uh, 13, he says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. He says, I was out there destroying the church. He was out there leading the charge. He was advancing in his own religion. He was, uh, was, was one of the up-and-coming young future leaders on the fast track. And part of what he was doing was, was out there destroying this heresy that had, that had erupted within Judaism. See, Paul knew all the rules, all the regulations, and he was adept at catching even the, the most minute violation. I think Paul's trying to, to, to make two points here. First, that Paul was a legalist par excellence. He was a legalist of legalists. So if you want to know about legalism, ask him. He's been there. But the second point he's making is that he was advancing. He was right where he wanted to be. He was, his star was rising. He had no motivation to convert to this little heresy that he was already mowing down like so many weeds. He wasn't hanging around listening to the message. He was wiping them out. He was jailing them and killing them. So he wasn't listening to what they were saying. It says, Verse 15, but when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. You see, God stopped him cold in his tracks. We've got that story described in in Acts 9. Let me read that description. It says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, 
Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, sir? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told to you what you must do. See, nobody shared the four laws with Paul. Paul didn't come to a meeting and hear the gospel presented. Jesus knocked him down on the ground and said, stop it. Listen, I've got a job for you. And Paul, we're told that Paul went into the city. He was blinded by this light. And Ananias came to him and in the name of Christ healed him. And Paul says, I didn't immediately go down to Jerusalem and say, what is this story? What is this gospel? Explain it to me. Paul said, no, I headed out into the deserts of Arabia, where our soldiers are now, where the war is going on. I went out in the desert, and there I prayed, and I listened to Jesus Christ himself. For three years out in that desert, Paul was taught by the Lord himself. He says in verse 18, Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, and stayed with him fifteen days. But, he did not, but I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, what I'm writing you, I assure you before God, I'm not lying. It says that after three years of already knowing the gospel, he went down to Jerusalem to meet Peter after all these years. And while he was there, he met James as well. He stayed there a couple of weeks, talked to these guys. The, the term he uses for, for, for going to Jerusalem is a term that's used for sightseeing. It was not a business trip. He went down because he wanted to meet Peter that he had heard so much about, that he knew about. So he went down. We're told also in Acts that while he was there, he spent the majority of his time on the streets preaching, trying to convince his old friends that Jesus really is the Christ. And that got him into trouble. They started persecuting him. It's also interesting that when he first got to Jerusalem, Peter wouldn't have anything to do with him. Peter hid from him. In fact, all of the believers hid. Paul couldn't find any Christians in Jerusalem because they, none of them were willing to come out and let him know that they were Christians until finally Barnabas, who is my personal hero, comes over to Paul, sits down with Paul, talks about what happened. When he hears of Paul's conversion, Barnabas trusts him. And so he takes him around and starts introducing him to the other Christians, and eventually introduces him to Peter, and they have a chance to get to know each other. This may sound rude or strange in a society like ours, but really in most parts of the world where, where being known as a Christian can cost you your job, your family, your life, this is the way it works. You don't walk into a town and all the Christians come out of the woodworks and say, hi, we're, we're, we're believers. No, it's very carefully done, and it has to be done through introductions, and and, and people have to trust you before they can open up, because it's so dangerous. That's the way it is in many, many, in fact, most of the world. Well, like I said, Paul got in trouble while he was there, because he spent most of his time preaching, not sitting in lectures and classes on the gospel. He was out on the street preaching, and the Jews tried to kill him. So, verse 21, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. That's where Tarsus is. That's, that's Paul's hometown. Paul went home. And he says, And I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ. But only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Paul says, Even this late in, in the game, 
I wasn't hanging around Jerusalem or even in the area around Jerusalem, picking up the gospel, learning the gospel. In fact, the people in, in, in that area, they, they didn't even know what I looked like. They had never met me. So it is impossible for me to have picked up my gospel from the Jerusalem church. See, that's the point. This is those people that are saying, I just got it there and have, and have brought it and trying to do it myself. It can't be true. I never had the chance to learn it there. I was never in the area long enough to learn the gospel because Paul wants to make the point absolutely clear, and this is the first essential point that he makes, that his gospel, the message he brings, is not a product of his brilliant mind taking the teachings of of Peter and the other apostles and developing them to a new, higher sophistication, starting this whole new religion. Paul says it's just not the way it happened. You see, that's what's argued today. If you take a class on the New Testament, you'll be told in most academic circles that Paul took the rudimentary, basic, simple gospel of Jesus and and, and the other apostles, and then he made it complex and sophisticated and, and formed it into this whole new religion. But Paul's here to say, man, it didn't happen that way. It couldn't have happened that way. Historically, the opportunity was never there. He said, I received this gospel directly from Jesus Christ. That's where I got it. In fact, that's where all the apostles got it. The other 12 got their message from Jesus Christ in the three years they spent with him that's described in our gospel accounts. Paul got his message from Jesus Christ in the three years that he spent with Jesus out in the desert. And that's why the gospels, the messages of the apostles all agree. They all got it from the same teacher. It's not that they borrowed from each other or one took and developed the other. They got it from the same teacher. That's the point Paul wants to make. The second point that he's about to make comes out of this. You see, the fact that their Gospels were similar, but there were some differences, was was giving uh, um, credence to those who were arguing. See, Paul not only got this Gospel from the Jerusalem church, but he got it wrong. He's out there changing it. He's messing it up. Because if you go to the Jerusalem church where the real apostles are, where the, where the uh, pillars of the church are, are, you see that everybody dresses like a Jew. Well, the fact is Jerusalem is a Jewish city. But their argument was everyone dresses like a Jew. Everyone is circumcised. Everyone uh, eats like a Jew. Everyone prays like a Jew. They, they sing Jewish songs. You know, to become a good Christian, you have to first become a good Jew. It's obvious. Go to Jerusalem. Look around. You'll see that's the way it works. But here's Paul out there in Cilicia and Syria and even through Galatia, letting Gentiles become Christians like Gentiles. I mean, these people aren't, aren't circumcised. They don't dress like Jews. They dress like Gentiles. They eat the wrong stuff. They pray like pagans with their heads uncovered. It's shocking. You know, they, they say... If they want to be real Christians, they've got to do it like the real apostles do, like the church in Jerusalem, like the Jews do. That was their argument. Then after an interval of 14 years, verse 1 of chapter 2, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I was preaching among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who are of reputation for fear that I might be running 
or had run in vain. Paul says that it was because of a revelation that he and Barnabas went to Jerusalem. This is described in, in Acts 9 as well. A man by the name of Agabus, who was a prophet, prophesied that there would be a famine in Jerusalem, in Judea. And the Christians there in Antioch decided to take up a collection. They collected money and gave it to Paul and Barnabas and sent them to Jerusalem to bring the money to the apostles there so the apostles could distribute it to those who were in need. Paul says, and while I was there, I met privately with the other apostles and I explained to them the gospel I had been preaching already for 14 years. I'm not, I'm not learning it. I'm there telling what I have already taught for the last 14 years. Now, Paul was very frustrated at this point, and I would guess so were the other apostles, by what was happening. What was happening was there were people running back and forth trying to bring division. They would come back to the apostles in Jerusalem and say, you wouldn't believe what Paul is doing. He's doing this and he's doing that and he's saying this and he's saying that. And they would distort the teachings of Paul. And then they would follow Paul around. And every way where he went, they would try to undo what he did. They would follow him around and say, no, 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 Paul got it wrong. We have just come from the real apostles in Jerusalem. And this is the way they do it there. This is the way it should be done. And Paul felt like he was running in vain, that he was working and everything he did would get undone. He was getting nowhere. And that really was happening. He was getting nowhere. His ministry hadn't taken off by this point. But now Paul and the other apostles had the opportunity to sit down face to face, talk it all through. That's the only way to deal with rumors and gossip. That's the only way to deal with it. If somebody comes to you and says, so-and-so is saying such and such, don't accept it. I'm not saying that your friend's lying to you, but their own feelings, their own interpretation, their own perspective is going to put a spin on what they say. It's going to inevitably, necessarily, unavoidably distort what you're hearing. So if you've got concerns about what somebody is saying or doing, call them up. Go talk to them face to face. That's the only way to cut through all of the confusion, all of the suspicion, all of the division the enemy tries to breed among us. Go talk to them face to face. That will bring about understanding and unity. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we owe it to each other to act with this kind of integrity. Verse 3. But not even Titus who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Paul says, Titus, who was a Greek and uncircumcised, was not even asked to be circumcised. The idea that the apostles in Jerusalem were teaching that you had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian is absurd. It's just not true. They were not teaching that. Paul uses Titus as his proof. He says the whole confusion is just because of these pseudo-Christians, these what he calls pseudo-brothers, who had sneaked in, who, who, who were trying to suck us all into playing religion with them and having to follow all of their rules. See, these guys were breeding division. 
breeding disunity and taking advantage of that for their own egos to, to advance themselves. That's the, the, the goal in legalism, really is to, to, to make the, the, the ones who make the rules feel important. The ones who are making the rules to, 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 to have control of other people. And Paul says that he and the other apostles didn't go for this scheme for a second. And they didn't fall for it. They rejected it immediately out of hand. It was wrong. Now, verse 6 sounds a little bit rude, but from those who were of high reputation, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. Now, when you read that, it sounds like, <laughs> like Paul's being rather huffy and offended that he is, is looking down on the other apostles, these big shots that think they're so hot. They are nothing on me. I don't even... I don't even care what they had to say. I don't even like them. But that is not what Paul was doing. See, Paul respected the other apostles. He, 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 he recognized their authority as apostles. The same Jesus that commissioned him, commissioned them. And, and I, I, I'm sure that during those three years in the desert, Jesus talked a lot about these guys. Explained a lot about where they were coming from. And what he had taught them. Paul knew who they were. Paul knew and respected them as commissioned by his Lord, Jesus Christ. But what Paul is doing is trying to to expose the fallacy of of these, uh, these Jewish schemers. Who again were trying to bring this division. Uh, who were, who were talking about the Jerusalem apostles like they were these wonderful Human beings that, that floated a few feet off the ground, putting these guys up on a pedestal. And Paul says, man, you, nobody belongs on a pedestal. Nobody. God doesn't respect persons. He's not impressed by anybody. He's not impressed by Peter or James or Paul or anybody. Because we are all weak human beings. And Paul teaches this elsewhere. We are all just clay vessels for the glory of God to set in. It is God's power that allows anything of value to happen. And, and Paul understood that, and he teaches that. But see, these false brethren, these legalists, they want to put people on pedestals because that's where they want to get themselves. They want to be on the pedestal. They want everybody to look up to them, and they want to be able to lord it over everyone. The real apostles, they could care less about being a big shot. They couldn't care less about position and authority like the Gentiles lording it over them. What they wanted, what they were interested in, was obeying their Lord and loving people. You know, it's interesting that these Jews who wanted the Gentiles to be like Jews were actually being like the worst of the Gentiles. When Jesus said, don't be like the Gentiles who who get in positions of authority and then they lord it over people and they push people around. That's exactly how these guys were acting. Paul says that the other apostles, when, uh, when uh, Paul had explained what he was teaching, they said, whoa, that's great. They had nothing to add. There was, no, there was nothing that they felt like Paul was leaving out. They said, this is fantastic. That's great. Go for it. Verse 7. 
But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been in, to the to the excuse me, I had been entrusted to the gospel to the uncircumcised or the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised or the Jews. For he who effectively worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectively worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be the pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing also I was eager to do. Paul finished talking, and they said, fantastic. And it was clear to them when Paul talked that, that Paul had been instructed by Jesus because absolutely everything that Paul said was right on. It was exactly the way Jesus taught them. So they knew that Jesus had taught Paul. And they, they grabbed Paul and Barnabas and they shook their hands and they said, go to it, get out there, do it. There was no jealousy, no competition. They were just delighted. They were just excited that Jesus was building his church like he said he would. You see, legalism breeds competition and division and jealousy. But the true gospel, the gospel of grace, breeds unity, breeds appreciation that God has made each of us different and will use each of us in a different way. They looked at Paul and they said, listen, God has given you a different ministry. You do things different than we do, but that's great. That's fantastic. That doesn't bother us at all because it's the same Lord. It's the same message. And and He's free and you're free to minister in any way that's consistent with the truth that Jesus gave you. And they were excited for Paul. They weren't at all jealous. The only thing they commented on was for Paul to remember the poor. And and, and Paul says, that's no problem. That's exactly what I'm doing in Jerusalem in the first place was bringing money for the poor. So Paul says, this is great. There was, there was no changes, no, no difference in what we were teaching. See, the division, the, the, the differences between the teachings of the various apostles were only a figment of the imagination of those who did not want to hear the word of God, those who loved darkness rather than light. Paul said, man, we put that to rest. This idea that the, the, the apostles' writings cannot be reconciled or in contradiction is one that, that has received a lot more attention in the last hundred years. Again, that is taught today. That you take the book of Galatians and compare it to what James wrote in the book of James and the two can't fit together. Or people like to talk about the Pauline gospel and the Petrine gospel and show how different they are, that, that they were completely different messages. Well, Peter and Paul and James got together in Jerusalem and are here to tell you that's not true. They put that, that nonsense to rest 1950 years ago. They got together, they talked about it, and they said, no, we agree. Now, we may communicate it a little differently. We may articulate it differently. We may be talking to different groups of people and so emphasizing different points, but it's the same message from the same teacher. I've even heard uh, it said that, you know, I like Jesus, but it's Paul that really bugs me. 
Well, you can't have it that way. I think people that say that have never listened to Jesus. They usually think Paul is too harsh. Well, listen to Jesus sometime. Really listen. You see, there is no difference between the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Paul because it all comes from Jesus. They are consistent. It's the same. This point is critical, and and Paul knew how critical this was. That's why he goes through this, what must have been a a somewhat humiliating uh, exercise of defending himself, of defending the truth of his gospel. You know, Paul was not a vain person. He, he, he teaches in many places that, that he was the chief of sinners. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I was not worthy to be an apostle because I persecuted the church. He, he talks about the fact that it's only because of God's work that any good thing dwells in him. That it's because of his weakness that God uses him. See, that's the way God always works. He always uses broken, weak human beings like you and me, and Paul. And Paul was acutely aware of this and very open about his weakness. But Paul also realized the necessity that he had to demonstrate that the word of God is, like Peter says, not a matter of human interpretation, but men filled with the Holy Spirit spoke from God. He wanted to make it clear that his message was not his interpretation, his thinking, his understanding, but it was filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking, writing, teaching the words of Jesus Christ himself. It's essential that we understand it. And that message, that, that, that position is affirmed by the rest of the apostles. Well, just think of the impoverishment of our Bibles if uh, Paul and his writings were not included in our Bibles, not counting the Gospels, the four Gospels, 13 out of the 23 books of the New Testament were written by Paul. And another one was written primarily about Paul. In, In my New Testament, 61 out of 100 pages were written by Paul. Now, if he was left out, we could, from the rest of the, uh, of the writings of Scripture, we could understand the grace of God, and we could understand the nature of his love for us and, and what the gospel is all about, because it's clear in all of the writings of Scripture. <clears throat> but nowhere is it more fully described and explained and applied than the writings of Paul. You know, and the grace of God is really what the whole book is about. There was a, an early church uh, blessing that Paul used. It says, I commend you to God and the word of his grace. The word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among the saints. See, it's able to build you up and give you all the riches of Christ. The word of God is absolutely essential to us as believers. That's why we, uh, why it's necessary for us to defend it historically, logically, theologically. And that's also why we 
place such an emphasis on the Word of God here in, in this congregation. That's why we have growth groups and Bible studies during the week where people can get together and study it together and talk it over with each other. That's why we encourage you to be reading, to be studying, to be meditating on your own. That's why we spend the majority of time, whenever we are gathered, studying, teaching from the Word of God. It's not for the entertainment value. If we were going for entertainment, we would give you a, uh, you know, a five-minute sermonette with you know, you know, a five-minute soundbite here and there sprinkled in, but we did a lot of other stuff. Uh, it's not for the entertainment value. It's because we realize how essential, how important the Word of God is to our health, our survival as believers. Jesus, in, in Matthew 4, was quoting Deuteronomy 8. And he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And what he's saying there is, is the Word of God is our food. We need it to live. You need to eat every day. You need to eat bread and meat and vegetables and whatever else you need to eat. Ask my daughter. She knows all of the food groups. I always thought they were pizza, Coke, french fries. But she's got it straight. We need to eat every day. And if we don't, we grow weak. Well, actually, we probably don't need to eat every day. Some of us need to not eat for a few days. But we do need to eat regularly and healthily. If we don't, we begin to weaken, we dissipate, we waste away. And the same thing is true spiritually. That if we don't eat, if we're not fed the good food of the Word of God, we waste away, we dissipate, we, we, we become sickly and unhealthy. And it's possible to fill ourselves up on spiritual junk food as well. Stuff that's just full of excitement, full of entertainment, full of calories, but no nutrition. Stuff that's just lacking the content of the Word of God. That's filled just with the opinions of men, with with exciting new ideas, with entertaining stories, with things that don't bring us and explain to us and help us understand and digest the Word of God. It, It dulls our appetite, thinking that we have eaten spiritually but it leaves us sickly and unhealthy and emaciated. Now, if we want to grow strong, if we want to grow, we need to be fed from the Word of God. Peter calls it the the pure milk of the Word, likening it to wholesome mother's milk. And we need a spiritual la leche league. The Word of God also, we're told in Scripture, it cleans us. It transforms us. In the book of John, Jesus says that his apostles have been cleaned by his word. And then later on, he says that it, it sanctifies us. The word is truth, and the truth of his word sanctifies us. It sets us apart. It changes us. It begins to change the way we think and the way we act. As we listen to it, as we embrace it, as we accept it, and meditate on it, think it through, It changes the way we look at life. We hear how God looks at life. We hear what's important to Him. And and what Scripture calls the mind of Christ begins to grow in us and change our outlook, our view of ourselves and other people. And it changes the way that we act. It transforms our behavior. As as, As the life of Christ inside is nourished by the feeding on the Word, it grows and begins to get stronger, pushing all of the garbage out ahead of us so that new life 
can emerge. We're also told that the Word of God sets us free. Free from the confusion and the sin that just drags us down. Jesus said, If you abide in my Word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So we spend time listening to Him, thinking about what He has said through the writings of His apostles. Something happens. We first demonstrate that we are really His disciples, that we really do follow Him, because we respond to His Word. How can we say we're followers of Jesus if we never follow, if we never listen to what He says and where He's going? But when we do listen and respond, then he says we are also in that process set free. See, the fears that, that were consuming us and enslaving us to destructive and, and self-defeating behavior are replaced with a security in his love as we see him as he really is and his great love for us. The wounds that continue to torment us and cause us to withdraw within ourselves begin to be healed and close up as as the healthy tissue underneath becomes strong and healthy and we're able again to love and to reach out. All all of these these virtues of the word are, are true, but there's one Reason, one real ultimate reason, one ultimate purpose for the Word of God. And it's described for us in John twenty thirty one. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that trusting you may have life in His name. You see, that's the real goal of it all. That when you read His Word, when you take His Word in, that you might meet Him and grow to trust Him and let Him give you life. See, apart from this, the the Word of God is pointless. Jesus, in speaking to uh, a group of people who just wanted to play religion, He says, listen, you search the Scriptures thinking that in them you find eternal life, but it is these that speak of Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you might receive life. You see, that is the value. That is the power of these words. They are His words. And as we read them, we understand Him more. We understand His priorities, His values, His likes, His dislikes, His his explanations of ourselves and our world. And we, we grow to trust Him more deeply, we, we, we grow to, to, to love Him more completely. Now, this is the key to the Scriptures. And without this key, the Scriptures remain locked to us. But with this key, all of life opens up to us. We, we start to understand. God opens our eyes and we start and shows us the, the, our own world around us. And we start to understand. He teaches us how to live. The 119th Psalm is the longest chapter in the Bible. 176 verses. All of them are focused on the value of the Word of God. But uh, verse uh, 105 says, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I'm not sure I was. I hadn't decided when I got up here whether I was going to tell this story. I probably shouldn't, but I will. Just don't tell anybody. Uh, before I was a believer, I want you to make sure you understand that. Before I was a believer, 
I was running, uh, happened to be running from an officer of the law, and I was running through the, uh, this on this trail, and it was pitch black. And as I was running, I stepped uh, or I tripped on a, a root or something and banged my knee, and it was hurting like crazy. I got up and started running again, and I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. And I'm running as fast as I can, and suddenly there was a creek there. Never saw the thing. All, the only thing I felt was the impact of the bank on the other side. And I just lay there, and I rolled off and lay there. I think the guy hadn't been chasing me. I'm sure he'd stopped long before that, but I was scared enough that I was still running. And I laid there probably for a half hour, limped home, and I was on crutches for two weeks because I'd twisted one ankle so badly and bruised up my knee. You know, that's what he's describing here. Not necessarily running from the police, but running down a dark trail on a moonless night where you can't see a thing and there are roots and holes and, 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 and rocks in the trail. And we go through life stepping in a hole and twisting our ankle or tripping on a rock and banging our head against a tree, skinning our knees and hands. And we go through life just getting beat up. And, and he says, no. God's Word is like a flashlight. You keep it in front of you and you see the rocks, you see the holes, you see the roots and you can step around them and you can walk and be healthy and whole because that's what God wants for us. He wants us to understand and as we spend time being fed from His Word, we begin to see things as they are. He shows us what's really going on in history, in our relationships inside of us. You see, God's Word provides us stability. It's a root. It's, a, it's, a, it's an anchor for us in times like these. Uh, we had several psalms read this morning. And I encourage you maybe even to go and read those again. To read of God's love, God's control at times like these. Another passage, 1 Peter 4, 7, tells what kind of people we should be at times like these, faithful, generous, kind, not consumed with the fears around us. The Scriptures are our stability. They provide stability in an unstable world and in an unstable time. Well, let's, let's pray. Lord, we do uh, just acknowledge Your generosity that You have opened Your heart to us You have told us things that are important to you, things that you feel. You've told us your hurts. You've told us your desires. We so often treat that with contempt. We are so often so rude to you that we don't treasure these things. And we act as if it was nothing of you to open yourself to us. But Lord, we want to, to treat you with the respect that we want others to treat us. We want to, we want to listen and understand and know what it must feel like to you and know what you must, how you must look with a broken heart as you see people destroying each other, destroying themselves. We want your heart. Lord, ultimately, we want to see you in these words because we want to know you. We want to love you because you have loved us so greatly. We just commit ourselves to that. Bring us back to your word over and over this week. Help us to be faithful with the times that we set aside to read it and study it. Use your word to magnify yourself and glorify yourself in our lives. We pray in your son's name. Amen.